Welcome to the MLM podcast, in which we explore the insights, experiences, opinions, and habits of thought leaders and world-class performers. In this episode, I speak with Casper Berry, who is one of the world's leading authorities on the topics of uncertainty, risk, and decision-making. He has delivered more than 2,000 speeches in over 30 countries to clients, including Google, Volvo, Microsoft, and Red Bull. He studied economics at Cambridge University before making the momentous decision to move to Las Vegas and become a professional poker player. He was an advisor to the James Bond movie Casino Royale, and he also founded 21st Century Media, which he built to a team of 40 before selling to a PLC. Within this conversation, we explore attitudes towards uncertainty, techniques for decision-making, and the benefits of quitting quicker. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy the Casper Berry episode of the MLM podcast. Casper, it's great to see you again, albeit virtually. Are you, are you keeping well? I'm very well, thank you. Good man. Casper, I'd like to jump straight into uncertainty, if I may. And I think many of us thought there was some level of uncertainty in our lives prior to to February and March of this year. Uh, Little did we know. How do you think the role of uncertainty within our lives has changed within the last few months? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, you know, I think, um, as the old uh, expression goes, was the French Revolution a good thing? Too early to say, right? It it is too early to say because we're still in the middle of it. But I have a hope and I have a suspicion, and both of them are in the same direction, which is that we will become more, more and more attuned to the role that uncertainty plays in our lives. But let's just put that in context. So I've been doing this job for 15 years, and this job relies, it depends on people accepting that uncertainty is a profound force in order for them to go on to accept anything else that I say about risk and decision making. And when I started in 2004, that was quite an odd concept for a lot of people. Um, in fact, I would have some people who just straight up would say, it's just not true, it just doesn't really apply to my life. You know, I go to work, I do my job, I go home, I'm not a risk taker, it's really not an uncertain world. That all changed in 2008. Um, the way I always phrase this is that once people realize that the money in their current account is not actually 100% safe, like like it's it is actually an investment you know you make little returns sometimes but that you can lose it uh you've got deposit protection insurance but you know just imagine a world where everything goes pop the politicians will tell us that these are unforeseen circumstances and they can't protect everything um you know once that happened people people changed their reaction a lot um you then started bandying around phrases like you know vuca and volatility and uncertainty with uh, with abandon I, the day that I knew that my work had gone mainstream was when Jim Collins started writing about it. There's a book called Great by Choice, uh, subtitled Chaos, Uncertainty, Luck, and How to Thrive Despite Them All. And so that takes us up to today. And I, I hope that the legacy of COVID will be that we all have a deeper and deeper and deeper appreciation that uncertainty affects us all profoundly. Because if we do, then we actually make better decisions as a result. And do you think there are any any lessons that 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 we can take in in either how to deal with uncertainty or or how to manage a crisis as individuals or as a collective? Are there any lessons that we can take from from COVID 
So I've spent the last 15 years talking about upside, right? The, the impact of uncertainty on the upside. So broadly speaking, my key message has been, if you invest in things, opportunities, possibilities, which might not work, right? They might not happen. And sometimes you will fail and there's your motivational speaker angle. Um, but every now and again, one will work. And if the upside is great enough, if it's like an innovation or a new business idea or you know, that kind of opportunity, then the return that you get will more than pay for the downside investment, right? That, that's been my bread and butter for the last 15 years and, and breaking that down into more and more sort of technical constructs depending on the session. But on the other side of that, I've always been just as passionate, if not more passionate about the downside, right? About the fact that there are some things which like those upsides, they're the downsides, the, the low frequency, high impact events, they're not always gonna happen, they're very rarely gonna happen. But if they happen, the person who's invested in the protection uh, against those things, you know, is going to be the person that survives them. In fact, in that book, um, Great by Choice, Jim Collins says that the, the companies he calls 10Xers, right, the companies that outperform their sort of close competition by 10 times over a period of, uh, a period of time, um, they held between three and 10 times more cash in their, in their balances than the, uh, than the lower performing companies because they were ready for those downsides. So I think the first impact of COVID has to, I hope, I hope that it is to show people that these, these downsides are going to happen. And that even the most extraordinary thing, think about the things that have happened in the last four months that we now just take for granted, because once anything happens, it becomes experience and not possibility. Now we take for granted. But if you'd said, if you'd said six months ago that Europe would refuse entry to Americans, the person you were talking to with thought you were mental. Um, things of such enormous gravity and size are happening now on a daily basis that, 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 that we just would never have imagined. And the point to expand that is that whilst the things that have happened to us are now experienced, all of those possibilities are also possible. That is their nature. I remember when I first got into risk management, I remember someone talking to me about Sod's Law. You heard Sod's Law, which is anything that can happen, anything that can go wrong will, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, was that Murphy's Law? So I got a bit confused. That's embarrassing. But anyway, that's, the, that's the, that phrase, right? And I remember, I remember um, thinking, why are they talking about that law? Like, that's just a joke. That's something my granddad used to say when it rained on a picnic, right? But it's not. It's a really important concept of risk management. It doesn't mean that it will go wrong on this occasion. It doesn't mean it'll definitely rain on your picnic. But what it means is anything that can happen, anything that is possible to happen, it's like the Sherlock Holmes quotation, at some point will. And the more that we can run our businesses, and in fact our lives with that in mind, the better prepared we're going to be for when it happens. And the more dismissive we are, the more that we live, as I like to put it, sort of in the middle of the bell curve, right, in the, in the average, um, as uh, Talib used to call it, mediocristan, uh, the less prepared we are for those downsides. And also the less open and, and able we are to exploit those upsides. So in the case of, of insulate yourself from the downside, but open yourself up to the, to the upside? Yeah, so leadership in this VUCA age is about moving out of the middle of the bell curve, right? It's about spending less time thinking about the average thing that's going to happen. And that is really challenging because you can fill your whole time thinking about the average thing that's going to happen. And making those decisions but it's about spending more time thinking about the extremes not not as a sort of aside 
or you know in your spare time but as part of the general running of the business that's what VUCA means and it and there's two really important implications of that Kevin. number one the insulation of yourself against the downside is going to cost money even if it's just money held in cash then that is not getting a return but number two that return is going to be made back uh, doing what I've talked about for the last 15 years which is investing in opportunities where your strike rate is lower but when you strike, you strike bigger. And the reason you get higher return on those opportunities is because at the moment, at least, fewer people are investing in them. Uh, and so the market is less efficient and where there's less efficiency, there's always greater returns to be made. And if, you're, if your natural inclination is to stay in the middle of the bell curve, what can you do to encourage yourself to move either side uh, almost open up your radar it's a really good question that's a really good question because i mean you know short of short of sort of you know there's uh, cbt cognitive behavioral therapy seeks to change the way that you think right but it's quite sort of it's quite sort of fundamental then you've got not the other end of any spectrum actually but you've got nlp neuro-linguistic program which uses metaphor to seek to change the way that you think yeah. actually changing the way that you think is is quite difficult the, the the spectrum that we're talking about here is the fox hedgehog spectrum so the sort of the, the great seminal survey that i will have talked uh, about the, the groups of yours that i talked to was that carried out by philip tetlock uh, for 20 years uh between the mid 80s and the mid noughties and, uh, and what he found was that as a, taken as a whole, these 284 great world experts in their fields were no better than random when it came to predicting the future, but that some were better than others. And the correlating factor that he found was that the successful people had a lower um, certainty and belief in the accuracy of their results. This is for a couple of reasons. Number one, precisely because they realized that predicting the future was so difficult that they took so much time and gathered so much data and tried to get it right. But it's also because they knew that the thing that they thought was most likely to happen was actually less likely than we all think it is, right? So, um, you know, the favorite in a horse race is definitely the horse most likely to win. But it's about understanding and accepting that it won't always win. Um, and if you're there having a bit of fun, then you know you probably bet on the outsider, and 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 if you hit it once, you you go home happy. You know, you've made an overall loss. But if you're going to become a serious uh, racing pundit, you have to understand that favourites are favourites. They are the favourite, unless you know something very specific that's different. But it's you know it's going to win less often than you than you think because it's definitely the horse most likely to win. So I think that it's uh, sorry. Let me just finish that point. So hedgehogs and foxes. Hedgehogs. Tetlock said, citing a poem by Isaiah Berlin, which is, is referenced in Greek mythology, I think, uh, they know one thing, right? They know one big thing. They have a big idea. These are the people you see as experts on Fox News, ironically. Um, they, they give certainty. They say, you know, Trump's definitely not going to win the next election. And we all go, oh, that's good. And experts told us things. Foxes are more wily. They don't know the one big thing, but they know lots of different little things. Um, that they might be you know more generalists they're also frustrating because they don't give us certainty because they say things like on the one hand and but on the other hand um, but they predict the future better now your question is a really really good one how do you move people from the one stage to the other i.e from hedgehog to fox it's not easy because 
like a lot of belief systems that people have, these are the products of many, many years of believing things. I mean, I do sessions, probably shouldn't say this, but I do sessions quite often to self-made men and women who, you know, they've built 10 million pounds of wealth um, by doing things the way that they believe things should be done. They are very often, not always, but very often hedgehogs. It's very difficult to say to that person, the thing that you prize yourself on more than anything else, right? I.e. your judgment, your ability to predict the thing most likely to succeed, to employ this person, to invest in this, you know, product, to, to market this way, to say that that thing, that mechanism that you have, your judgment is not as good as you think it is. And actively you should move to a place where you doubt it a bit more. That is very difficult. Yeah, thank you. To, to to stay on the same course but but uh, evolve into the topic of risk and in the same way I was asking if, if you can move to, to, to either side of the bell curve when it comes to risk if, if someone is, is naturally risk averse how difficult is it for for him or her to change that mentality great that's an excellent question and in some ways by rephrasing the last question, which I didn't really properly answer. <laughs> bite at the cherry. Um, because, so I talked about CBT and NLP, right? Like, you, if you think about someone who's scared of flying, like, the first thing you can do is just show them a lot of statistics about how safe flying is, right? That's the first thing. And that will have limited success, but it won't have no, no effect. Like, some people will, they'll see, they might not have ever been exposed to those statistics before. So showing people, like, the, the frequency and impact of things is one way to move from the, the, the middle to the exterior, the, the outside. The second way is to tell stories, and this is why, you know, we've all got mad for stories in the last 20 years, because it is a genuine way. It is using metaphor to intrinsically, fundamentally shift people's belief systems about how something should go so you can tell stories about you know things happening like 2008 and, and a proliferation of stories around that do change people's opinion but the third way is experience you know so they take people who are scared of flying and they actually take them on a flight and and so 2008 and COVID, the reason why they're impactful events and the reason why they will move people to other ends of the bell curve is because they're experiences of things happening that are undeniable and irrefutable. So of course it's possible for some of those self-made men and women to come out of that experience and go, oh, that was just a one-off, right? We all have rounds of golf where you go, if I hadn't had a seven on the 13th, you know, I'd have shot an 82, okay? Um, you go, it's a one-off. Convincing people that those one-offs are more likely to happen is really difficult, but that's the, that's the goal here, right? Is it 2008 and COVID um, and 9-11 and, um, and OPEC and these shocks to the system, they're not just one-offs. If you think about them, you can put those, those events into a timeline and with the exception of something happening in the mid 80s, like you've pretty much got all your, your, your decades represented, right? Once every seven years, once every 10 years. They're regular, just like going into bunkers and having nightmares and, and, and a round of golf. They're going to happen most rounds. And so what you're really trying to do here, right, and the answer to your question is, you're trying to take people from thinking short-term to thinking long-term. Because if someone is risk-averse, what you're really trying to do is get them to change the time frame of their thinking, okay? Let me give you an example. If you're a salesperson and you've got to hit your Q2 sales targets, what's the best way to do that? 
just to pick up the phone, right? Now, if what you fear is someone saying no and rejecting you, then picking up the phone is quite difficult. But if what you fear is not making a Q2 sales targets, and that's become your reinforced goal, right? And I mean reinforced with like bonuses and chastisements, carrot and stick, then pretty soon your body will start to get rewired to pick up the phone because you're moving from a short-term to a long-term perspective. And actually what you're also doing is you're rewiring the term over which your fear of failure operates. So um, that's, that's how we make people better decision makers, is by moving them from the um, short-term, um, in which they have a short-term perception of how likely things are to happen, i.e., Right now, it's very unlikely that I'll make a massive sale, but it's very unlikely that um, I'm going to crash on the way to this meeting to a long term, which is an appreciation that all of these things will happen. Sod's law, Murphy's law, um, they just have a, a frequency. And there are two little questions here. Sorry for the length of this answer, but, it's, but it really is the absolute key to, the, to this whole subject. Moving people from short term to long term thinking can be done with two coaching questions, right? One of them, slightly less effective one if you haven't done a, a seminar or a session by me, is to ask what's the net effect, right? Let's take the picking up the phone. If you pick up this phone, the person can say no, or you could make a sale, right? But if you pick up the phone a hundred times, what's gonna happen, right? If you get five yeses, you know, you sold a hundred thousand quid's worth, okay? Yes, you've got 95 no's, no, that wasn't very pleasant. Uh, yes, you'd rather a world in which that didn't happen, but the net effect of doing this thing a hundred, a thousand times is clearly positive. Okay, and that's the question that a professional poker player asks before they make any um, investment. Actually, is what's the net effect? You do something called Monte Carlo analysis. You work out the percentage chance you're going to fail, the cost of that failure, and the percentage chance you're going to succeed, and the reward of that failure. And you do a little calculation. Which you don't have to do with a calculator. You do in the pit of your gut. And by the way, you do it anyway that's what calculates whether you should take this action or not. So that's question number one. Question number two is great, right? Because question number two is take a risk averse person and say to them, not what if you do this versus don't do this? Because if you do something, there's always a chance of failure. As soon as you step outside of your comfort zone, as soon as you take any action at all, it's always the potential for downside. Here's the question. What if you do this versus what if you never do this? Right? And that moment saying never projects them into the long term and now suddenly they're experiencing the long-term consequences of inaction and if you never cross the room and ask her for a drink if you never employ your first person as a, as a sole trader what happens if you never take these these big actions as scary as they are you will never make progress you'll never move forward and in 5 10 25 years you will still be where you are at the moment and actually that's always what motivates us to take action at some place our brain thinks of that but by it's a, it's a cbt type question you can rewire people's brain by getting them to think in a slightly different way excellent uh, there was one other uh, technique i don't know whether we call it a decision making technique or a uh, consequences of action or inaction technique that i've heard you reference i think it was maybe coined by Susie Welsh. Is it the 10, 10, 10? Could you speak to that? Yes, very similar kind of thing. Um, in fact, I said earlier on, is the French Revolution a good thing? Too early to say, right? And that, that reveals something really interesting about events and decisions and you know actions, which is they have different manifestations over different time frames. 
so uh you know to the to the revolutionists in the in the days after the french revolution must have been an amazing thing and then in the next two years there must have been a lot of complicated you know uh results of that sort of change that people have to work through and now 200 years later you know you have this great nation of france and it wouldn't be possible without the uh the revolution so so um thinking about the results of a different uh, decision over different time frames is really revealing and important quite aside from the fact that the reason why we want you to think long term about these things is because you're going to spend most of your time in that long term you take the decision in the moment you then have the rest of your life to deal with the consequences of it so 10 10 10 it doesn't really matter um i think in the book what is it it's 10 hours 10 weeks 10 years i think but it doesn't matter you can say 10 minutes 10 months 10 years 10 weeks just take three time frames like that and ask yourself how you'll feel if you do or don't do this thing over those three periods of time and it is a brilliant coaching technique you know you can take someone who's struggling with a decision and just in five to seven minutes get them to think about three time frames I mean, I literally did this once with someone who was thinking about leaving their partner. And I say it again, it's those time frames that they're going to have to live through uh, with, the, with the consequences of their decision. And it can, it can make sometimes cloudy model thinking and much, much clearer. Well, to take those, those, that sense of three time frames and maybe, uh, take you back in time a little bit. I mean, you've had an, an incredibly diverse career and I, I maybe out by a few years on either side here, but if you were, you, you were in, the, in the TV industry as an actor at 18, a poker player at 28 and a professional speaker at, at 38, just to go on tens again. Yeah. What advice would you give yourself at each of those three ages, so 18, 28, and 38, looking back now. 18, kiss Tonya Cade in the back of the Odeon too, because <laughs> if you don't. Um, that's not even that flippant a point. I mean, like, you know, just do the thing that you want to do, man. Why are you, why are you holding back? You know, you both wanted to. So, um, I'm right. The, the first answer to this is going to sound very arrogant. I, I, try, I tried not to have too many regrets in my life. In fact, in fact, that, that is a genuine example of, of many regrets that I have in that kind of fear, that sphere and, and field in my personal life. It's not just seizing opportunities, not going to that party. You know, all of my life at the moment is because I was dragged out to an opening of a nightclub once. Now, I'm not saying you should go to opening of nightclubs, but like, you know, it was me just wanting to stay in and I, and I should have gone out and as I did, I met three people there who completely changed my life. I wouldn't be a speaker now today if I hadn't, hadn't gone to that nightclub. And I think I've probably turned down too many experiences like that because it felt like too much hassle at the time or stepping outside my comfort zone as a bit of an introvert. But what I did do in life is, uh, you know, it's that great book, Range, which is, which is doing the rounds at the moment is I did explore lots of different things and I didn't have any compunction in quitting, right? I mean, if I'd, if I'd been that kind of person who says, you know, Churchill said, never, never, never give up, never, 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 never. 
why I always say about that is that that is brilliant advice if the Nazis are at Calais, right? But it's really bad advice if you're working in the film industry and you've been doing it for 10 years and you're deeply unhappy, right? So, I mean, I stopped and I went and did something else. I knew that I had to go and do something a bit crazy and, and sort of almost had like a rite of passage, enter a liminal area as the anthropologist in me thinking about it. And then I would come back into my life and I would be sort of cleansed of, of my past and make a clearer decision. Um, and then I, uh, you know, I set up a video production company and I ran that for two and a half years. And I had enough clarity to know that that was never going to make me personally happy. I wasn't a great entrepreneur. I had a lot of fundamental problems with doing that. And so, you know, I stopped doing that. And that was when I moved to London and, and started being a speaker. And at first I was a trainer and then I thought, no, I really want to focus on the, on the speaking and the poker. So I think if anything, the piece of advice that I'd give myself was to quit things quicker. That's what they say, isn't it? Fail fast or, or you know, decide quickly that you're not going to do something. It's very difficult in the moment. It's very difficult to know what's the optimum period of time to do something for before you realize that it's not for you because there is definitely a sense of quitting you know you shouldn't quit just because things get tough but you should quit because for anything new to start something old must stop for any resources to be allocated they must be reallocated from something else so i don't i don't regret that and, and i think that that's the the thing that i did that that was good but yeah i would probably tell myself to be open to more experiences even though it might have felt like a hassle at the time Great answer. Great answer. You'd referenced a book in the middle of that answer. Was it Rain, did you say? Rain. Yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting book. He's, he's nicked at least a chapter from a book which I may never write, <laughs> um, but which was, which was always there because you experience something. So there's something, sorry to, to, to cut you off, but just, just, just briefly why that applies so much to my work. Um, you have something called the S-shaped utility curve, and without the advantage of graphs and things, it's, it's really hard to explain this. But at the bottom, if you, if you think of the letter S, and if you think if you're at the bottom left of that letter S, then you have an uphill bit to go, and that's a utility curve. And so what that uphill bit is telling you is that you get lots of utility and joy and pleasure and satisfaction from doing something for a bit uh, when you first start it. And actually, not just utility, but also benefit. And so he talks about people like uh, Roger Federer, who played lots of ball games when he was younger. Um, and, you know, for me, you can say even very focused people like Steven Spielberg actually practiced all the different aspects of making films before they honed in on directing. You know, they tried cinematography and, uh, and editing and all of those kinds of things. So range is about the idea that even though you're going to specialise in something eventually, doing lots of things to begin with is beneficial. Um, and it comes from an aspect of our psychology actually, which is, which is that um, it's better that you don't gorge on guavas when we're a primitive tribe living in the jungle. Um, it's better that you get sick of guavas and that you eat some mangoes and some bananas as well, because then you get the nutritional benefit of all of them. And so it's an aspect of our lives, like get the nutritional benefit of doing quite a few things when you're young. And that's why that's hardwired into us, get, get the benefit of range and then focus and what what tends to happen i think when people give advice to younger people is that if you backwards engineer the success of almost any successful person you will see immediately a period of focus but that is always not always but often preceded by diversification which allows them to find what they want to focus in on 
and I think companies should actually be quite similar is that you know we're all told by Jim Collins to, 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 to focus and to specialize and that's where success comes from but actually two things number one the knowledge and ability to focus comes from diversification initially and also specialization comes at the cost of diversification which is what actually makes you more resilient when those those low frequency high impact things hit great thank you thank you for sharing that well we 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 kicked off the, the chat around COVID and, and maybe we could move that way to to, to finish things off I, i've heard you Use the phrase that the age of capitalism has been has been lucky. Mm. Uh, would you mind explaining what you mean by that, and what you think, or if and how you think the age of capitalism may evolve, uh, having experienced what we've experienced over the past few months? Yes. Great, thank you for giving me the opportunity to say this. Now, the first thing is, I do need to do some more research into, I need some more data to back up this statement. It works in a way that is, it works in a way that, okay, it works in one of two ways. Even if it's wrong, there's an, there's an element in which it's still right. And let, let, me, let me just justify that, right? So what I mean by the phrase is that since 1920, okay, let's take our time frame from the end of Spanish flu, 1983. Um, Capitalism has a pretty good run. Now, it has had a world war, okay? We can't overlook that. It's also had, what's that statistic? There's only been like 13 days of world peace since World War II, okay? So it's not like conditions have been anything like just benign, okay? But what are those shocks? You know, OPEC, 2001, 2008, COVID. Let's imagine this. What if we've got lucky with COVID, right? What if an R of 2.5 to 3 is actually very low because measles is something like 17 and a death rate of 3% is very low because Ebola is something like 30%. What if we were in the middle now of a, of a, of a pandemic where we were genuinely, there was no deniers, right? We were all genuinely scared to leave the house. Think about that for a moment because it's completely physically possible. It's hard to have a high R with a high death rate because the host is killed, but you know, watch, watch something like Contagion or some scary film like that. It's horrible, okay? Yeah. Capitalism hasn't had to deal with that kind of shock to the system. Hasn't had a super volcano, hasn't had a tsunami hit, you know, any of the major cities, hasn't had a nuclear bomb go off, effects of climate change, which I think probably will be profound, and I'm not any kind of ecologist or environmentalist, but, you know, they haven't really kicked in yet. We've had a pretty good run. Right. And even if it's not completely anomalous, this is why even if it's wrong, it's right. Even if it's not completely anomalous, it's still the case that we've had conditions that have been fairly conducive throughout the world for capitalism to thrive. COVID is the first glimpse of anything we've had worldwide, a pandemic, which is almost antithetical to capitalism because people cannot go out and interact and spend money. But there are lots of things that could cause that. The classic example I always cite is Krakatoa. When it erupted in 1883, it created an ash cloud which enveloped the entire world for, a, for two years. And as we all know from our Icelandic volcano experience, that would ground all planes if that were to happen tomorrow. I mean, as bad as, you know, they've been, the air travel has been hit, this two, $2 trillion um, dollar a year um, business, they're still flying, you know, they're not all grounded. Imagine world economy if they were all grounded for two years and Krakatoa erupts every 150 years. And that's one, that's just one pretty big, but just one volcano. 
And my point is that there's, there's, so there's a, there's a theoretical kind of like, what would we do? How, how resilient are we as a company? But it's also all our risk models are based on this very benign sort of period. Like what if a nuclear bomb, what if, what if, you know, terrorism got real and four nuclear bombs were let off in the United States of America this year, now, tomorrow, next, it doesn't matter. Like, you know, how much damage would that do? What would be the impact on, on insurance? We've, we've already seen what happens when insurance goes under, when AIG goes under, because most insurance is calculated in a non-correlated way, right? So they go, it's very unlikely. So if this person may lose their job and not be able to pay their mortgage, but not everyone's going to lose their job and not be able to pay their mortgage. But what happened in 2008 was the entire American property market went down by 15%. And most models that, that um, insurance companies were using um, in all those CDS swaps couldn't, didn't accept a negative number for that eventuality. That's when your model's wrong. Well, I think that capitalism's risk models are wrong. And the collapse of insurance means the collapse of everything else on top of it, as we nearly saw in 2008. So like COVID, like 2008, these things might be just little, you know, jabs, just a little inoculation jabs to warn us of the potential effects of things that are bigger and that might be around the next corner. And they might be a thousand years away. But we think because we've had a good century, that all centuries will be the same. And I want to put it out there that they won't necessarily be so. And do you envisage models changing? Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I think they will. Because, in fact, I was talking about this with someone the other day. They said, so I talk about right answer philosophy. And they say, do you, do you think the right answer philosophy is the, is the desire for people to get the right answer? We talked about this at the beginning of the call. But people want their judgment to be correct, right? So they're, they're very unwilling to invest in something that might be wrong. And she said, do you think that's getting worse? And I said, actually, no, I think it's getting better. I think, you know, beginning with people like Edward de Bono, promoting lateral thinking and creativity, all the way through to seems unrelated, but but Nassim Taleb's Black Swan, um, just constantly now creating this idea that um, things that are unlikely are still going to happen. They're the opposite ends of the spectrum that I talked about earlier on. Black Swans are huge negative events that are unlikely. Creative thinking uncovers uh, positive opportunities that are unlikely. Um, I think actually it's getting better. I think that the, the, the human brain is probably by virtue of the fact that we record history much better now. Um, so now we are just acutely aware of things that happened in 1918 in the way that people who lived in 1918 would not generally, the general populace would not have been aware of what happened in 1818. So hopefully that long-term thinking that I say is at the heart of all of this, of great risk management, is by virtue of recording and news and learning and education and the general raising of all of those throughout the population, hopefully it's becoming better. Casper, a, a great answer and a, a fantastic way to, to finish off what I found to be a fascinating chat. So thank you so much for, for taking the time. My pleasure, thank you very much indeed. Just a quick and final word from me, folks, to say thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there are plenty more conversations with other thought leaders and world-class performers to come. 
So make sure you're following MLN on Twitter. That's at MLN underscore NI. And sign up for our e-newsletter by visiting mln.org.uk forward slash join. It's all free and in addition to receiving notifications about podcasts and speaker videos, you will also receive invites to free events that MLN organises throughout the year. The Management and Leadership Network is able to provide all of this for free due to the support of the MLN champions and they are Amet Insurance, CPL Recruitment, DAC Beechcroft, Danske Bank, Electric Ireland, PKFFPM, Ulster University and Experience. So thank you to those organisations and thank you very much for listening.